Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. So, hello, and thank you for listening to the Dementia Research podcast. This week, we're recording on location from the ADPD conference in Barcelona, where the weather has been poor, but the science has been great. <laughs> I'm Katie Hall, I'm a fourth year PhD student at the University of Bath, and after one too many drinks on Wednesday evening, I volunteered to be the host for today's show, so here I am. Of course, as ever with these conference highlight shows, we have an amazing lineup of guests to share their best, best bits, which definitely takes the pressure off of me. So let's introduce them. First of all, we have two people who know a great deal about biomarkers, which is useful as that's been a hot topic this week. So I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Amanda Heselgrave from University College London and Wagner Broom from University of Gothenburg. Hi, um, I'm Amanda and I run the Fluid Biomarker Laboratory at UCL um, in the Dementia Research Institute and we work on collaborations mainly with lots of different groups all over the world to, um, well, to measure your cohorts for the biomarkers of interest. Great, and Wagner? Hi, I'm Wagner. Uh, so I'm a joint PhD student between the Federal University of Rio Sul in Brazil and the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, where I'm currently working. So I'm mostly working with uh, plasma biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease, and I'm very much interested in understanding how they link to AD pathophysiology with PET and postmortem data, but also uh, to address the challenges that we must understand before they go into clinical practice, such as biological variation and other factors that might affect biomarker readings. Nice. So next up, coming all the way from Chicago, we have Dr. Percy Griffin, who is Director of Scientific Engagement for the Alzheimer's Association. Hi, Percy. Hi, I'm Percy Griffin. Um, as mentioned, I'm Director of Scientific Engagement with the Alzheimer's Association. So in my role, I work with the over 75 chapters in the United States. I'm focused on advocating on behalf of the patient for Alzheimer's disease to try and achieve our vision of a world without Alzheimer's and all other dementia. Awesome. And last but by no means least, we have UCL PhD student Anna Wernick. Anna is exploring lysosomal dysfunction in iPSC-derived models of Parkinson's disease, which luckily for us has also been a topic covered at this conference. She also probably had the best tweet of the conference, so go check that out. Um, hello, Anna. Hi. Yes, I'm a second-year PhD student at UCL, and I'm actually based at the Francis Crick Institute in Sonia Gandhi's lab. And in the Gandhi lab, we use IPS uh, models from Parkinson's disease patients. And my project specifically focuses on lysosomal dysfunction. I'm especially interested in a gene called GBA, which is one of the greatest risk factors of Parkinson's disease. And the GBA talk's actually a bit later on today, so I'm looking forward to that. But there have already been lots of really interesting lysosomal talks that I'm, I'm, I'm excited to talk about here. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. Um, so thank you all so much for escaping from the conference to join us on this podcast. Um, so, for those who don't know, these shows have a pretty simple format. Essentially, we go around the table, shamelessly plug our own talks, and highlight our favourites from other people. For those who don't know, the ADPD conference is mostly aimed at clinical and lab-based researchers. This year, it has over 3,000 participants, both in-person and online, from 64 countries, and with 594 speakers and 839 posters. So there's a lot to take in. So, Percy, I'm going to come to you first. What presentation has stood out for you so far? Thank you. Um, 
So before I get started on the specific presentation that has uh, stood out to me the most, I just want to point out a theme that we're seeing all through ADP, which is the maturation of the field. So um, in the past, things like Alzheimer's and other dementias, um, pretty much diagnosing them was kind of a guess. We had, what, about 30% of patients who were in clinical trials really not having Alzheimer's pathology. But nowadays, we're at the point where we, are ha we have uh, blood biomarkers that can stage the disease. And I know Wagner and, and others are going to be talking um, extensively about those biomarkers, right? It, it points to such powerful progress in the, in, in, um, in, in the field, as well as the, um, the approval of therapies that are aimed at targeting the underlying biology of the disease. Now, the fact that we're at the point that we can even say that and think about that and its application in health systems is so important for um, moving the needle towards what people need, which is powerful precision medicine um, in combination form that help change the course of the disease. Now, with that giant grandstanding done, um, I want to talk about my favorite talk so far. That was a talk by Michael Haneke. And his talk focused on the cellular interactions of microglia neurodegenerative diseases. And um, a lot of times I feel like we lose some of biology's liveliness when we, you know, put up graphs or have flat images that don't really show as much. This talk did not do that. So in terms of the science, he showed that microglia form um, tunneling nanotubes with, with neurons. And again, you know, back in the day when I was doing my PhD, we talked a lot about cell um, communication between different cell types in the brain. But here he showed that not only do they form these nanotubes, but they can use those to transfer organelles between um, the microglia and the neurons. And seeing this and how it, bec it becomes dysfunctional um, in diseases like Parkinson's, it was super cool to see coming alive on the, um, like on the screen. And um, you know, I used to do a lot of neuroimmunology and imaging, so that's my bias for that particular talk as well. But um, it also opened up other questions as to the importance of some of these other, uh, um, of some of these cell-to-cell um, -cell interactions in other neurodegenerative diseases. This was described in Parkinson's, but what do we know about this in frontal temporal dementia, and Alzheimer's, and all of the other um, uh, biological causes of dementia that are yet to be explored? So it was a very exciting talk to see, and I hope you can catch it on demand if you didn't see it live. Yeah, I sadly missed that one, which I'm kind of gutted about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's really cool that this tunneling like microtubules, is that what they're called? Yep. Um, that they're coming through. I remember when I was doing my undergrad, they were kind of mentioned and then quickly dismissed as probably being a hoax. Yeah. So it's really cool that they've managed to capture that live and you can really see that happening. Yeah. And like you said, I think it's really going to open up the field and this whole new like exploration that they can do now. So that's really cool. Yep. Nice. Um, so Amanda, let's come to you next. There's a lot of biomarker talk here, but is any of this new and what stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, I've mainly been to fluid biomarker um, talks at this uh, conference and Anything strikingly new? I'd say no, there isn't. Um, but what there is, is lots of progress, like building up the evidence that we've got that these biomarkers in blood are actually effective and useful. Um, 
I think that one of the things that I wanted to get from the conference is is that uh, confidence and that kind of evidence for when people come to us and they say, you know, we want to do this study, how, what should we measure? How will we go about it? And that's kind of what I need to get here. I need to be able to say, okay, so I do realize that Phosphatel 217 isn't available commercially at the moment, but I have an idea that it will be. Um, but I want to be able to say, this is what the biomarker you need to use is. This is gonna tell you in your population what you need to know. And the talk, just one of the talks I saw earlier today, actually, by Anthony Griswold from the USA. I didn't actually get the university, apologies. He was talking about looking at um, Phosphatel 181 in individuals of diverse ancestral backgrounds. And the reason why I really like this is because that's one of the things that we miss and we have missed for a really long time, is that it's all very well measuring these things in a European population, a white European population. However, that is not gonna give us precision medicine for the whole world. This is gonna give it for a tiny, tiny, for a, a, you know, a proportion of it. And I think one of the things, I didn't even know this, is that the APOE4 risk is so different across like um, kind of ethnicities. So that was something that was actually quite new to me. Maybe it shouldn't have been. But also, when you look at the genetic makeup, that actually it's not as simple as that either. You can't distinguish African-Americans. There's a continuum between us all. We're all related somehow. But we really need to look at what that relatedness means or that difference means when we think about diagnosing somebody or indeed uh, looking when we get those drugs that we need, indeed looking at responses in different populations because they're not all gonna be the same and we don't wanna treat the wrong person with the wrong drug. That's the kind of thing, that's, that's the thing that, that's my thing, right? The right person needs the right drug and we need to consider lots of things in that landscape. Yeah, that's so true. And I think also it kind of goes against precision medicine, doesn't it? If you're only looking at one population and then trying to treat yeah. a whole other population that might not have the same response. So exactly. definitely something that needs to be considered going forward. Um, Wagner, I'll come on to you next. Um, maybe you have some comments on what Amanda said. And I know you've been presenting, so you can tell us about that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with uh, with Amanda's uh, view. I think that uh, I'm also heavily biased towards fluid biomarkers, as I mentioned before. So I think that uh, in 2020, we saw the uh, beginning of these plasma phosphorylated tau assays. Uh, and uh, that moment, we were all very surprised that we w were actually to, able to measure it in the blood. And then I think that uh, last year in the conferences uh, from uh, 2021, we saw again some information uh, pointing that they worked, but it was still a little bit more restricted to some of the uh, some of the cohorts that measured it in the beginning. And I think that this year is is really an year of maturation, like uh, like Amanda mentioned, because uh, now most of these assays uh, are coming into commercial uh, platforms. So. Uh, Lots of people uh, and lots of cohorts in different ways, even in more uh, diverse backgrounds, as it's much needed, are starting to measure them. Uh, and I think that uh, one really urgent question that uh, showed up with the with the with the beginning of the plasma phosphatau assays 
uh, was that we had one paper talking about phosphatau 181, another paper about 217, uh, and maybe in the beginning we were really thinking, well, okay, which one is the best? And then last year we had more, and this year we have data from even more different assays. So we're in a point in which comparisons are needed, and quite a lot of studies now here in this year, and this was something that we did not have so much in the past two years, we're seeing lots of comparison between different plasma PTAU assays. And it's looking like uh, sometimes it's something that depends, might depend more, more heavily on the assay and how the assay works than maybe some special biological differences between phosphocytes. So uh, I think that I, I'm pretty excited to see them measuring, uh, being measured in so many different places and actually confirming that what we're doing and, and, and offering to our collaborators uh, is really working. Um, and uh, I think that uh, it was really also interesting to see the plasma PTAU discussion uh, in light of the recent uh, therapies. We saw some very interesting data uh, pointing that uh, plaque reduction was associated with, uh, in, in the aducanumab trial was associated with changes in, in phosphatau, so it's more evidence linking that phosphatau might be uh, an early event between amyloid and tangles. Well, I mean, it's just been uh, very interesting to see uh, how, how well they are working and understanding our next challenges with, with the plasma PTAU assays. Yeah, it's super exciting. And I've got to say, I'm not an expert in biomarkers, but I've been in the field for three and a half years. And when I first came to, I think it was the AIUK conference, they were kind of talking about biomarkers as a, what if this happens? Or like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had this in 10, 20 years and to, for it to have happened so fast and to have come so far in such a short amount of time with a pandemic in the middle is kind of crazy and really exciting. And you feel like there's a buildup of something that's good that's gonna come really soon. So that's really cool. Um, any other comments on that? Yeah, I, I want to add real quick to some of what you, what you guys said about um, about the plasma biomarkers and um, the the diversity angle that um, Amanda brought up is is so important not just because of driving access to underserved populations, but not understanding how these treatments or these biomarkers works in all populations is just bad science, right? Um, for example, Michelle Melke showed that um, showed that people with chronic kidney disease as well as cardiovascular um, conditions have um, changes in their uh, plasma P tau in the blood, which may limit the use of of these biomarkers in those populations. And African Americans in the United States are people who have higher um, incidences of this particular of this particular uh, of these particular conditions, right? And just to add also to something that you, you said, Amanda, is you want to get the right drugs into the right people, but also at the right time. And that's what these biomarkers are giving us as well. These blood biomarkers are giving us the ability to stage the disease and catch the disease at different stages to make sure that we're giving the right therapies at the right time to benefit the right people. Yeah, so true. Um, so Anna, I'll come on to you next. I know this is your first in-person conference, I think. Is that right? Yeah, the first one of my PhD, yeah. Which is crazy. In Barcelona, it's a pretty good one. Um, so maybe you tell us a little bit about your, um, just your experience of the conference and how it's been for you and then um, what's caught your eye. Yeah, so it's been really exciting so far. I'm presenting a poster. Um, so that's been really nice to have people come up to me and to actually kind of get some in-person feedback, which is nice. Um, and it's been really useful so far. And I had a chance also to 
catch my colleague or my, my lab mates talk this week as well, which was just really exciting to see kind of our lab in action. So I think it's all going it's going great so far. And it's yeah, it's been fun. And even though the weather's not been great, uh, I've never been to Barcelona before and I'm really enjoying it here. <laughs> Um, there's been a, quite a lot of good lysosomal talks actually this week, especially in the context of Parkinson's disease, which is my, my preference, my disease of preference. Um, but one of the main ones I think springs to mind is Dr. Maura Samarani's talk. Um, she's from France and her talk was on the role of the lysosome in the seeding of alpha-synuclein. And in her talk, she reported that alpha-synuclein fibrils are spread between cells in a prion-like manner. Um, and she reported that this is occurring via nanotubes, which Percy just spoke about earlier. So it seems to be quite a hot, hot topic this week, because um, this was actually one of the first instances that I'd really heard much about it. And I found it really interesting that whole organelles can be spread um, through these tunnels, including lysosomes. Uh, and so in her research, she found that um, in cells that were treated with alpha-synuclein fibrils, the cells took these fibrils up and localized them to the lysosome. And this damaged the lysosome, causing the pH to rise, so it becomes less acidic. And they also, that the membranes became more leak, leaky. So the lysosomes were then more likely to transfer um, uh, uh, these fibrils. And in some cases, she actually saw that these unhealthy cells that had taken up these fibrils and transferred them to their lysosomes, they were actually able to transfer their damaged lysosomes via these nanotubes to healthier cells that hadn't been treated. And in return, the healthy cells um, actually transferred healthy lysosomes to these sick cells. So she suggested that this seemed to be some kind of rescue mechanism, which I thought was really interesting. And all her work focused on control neurons that she treated with these fibrils. But um, she mentioned, and I think it'd be really interesting, that I think the next stage of this research um, would be to study this phenomenon and cells from Parkinson's patients which had specific lysosomal mutations such as GBA so I thought that'd be really interesting kind of area to follow. Yeah it's really cool it's good that you found like your little niche here. (laughs) Um, So for me I think probably my favorite thing about being here is just being able to talk to people again and I feel like I never really got that network experience for a lot of my PhD and now I've just spoken to so many people and I found people from like from Europe, from Canada who do very similar things to me and you can really collaborate on ideas and just it's a good feeling. Um, In terms of talks, I'm a Tau person so I really enjoyed the Tau Therapies talk in the first day. Um, It was good for me because um, they focus not like on they didn't focus on antibodies mechanisms, which is just coherence, which obviously is important, but I'm more interested in kind of mechanistic ones and they were looking at other mechanisms of targeting tau. Um, one example was Suzanne Erdinger, and she showed that you can actually restore spine density in a tau model of tau, um, a mouse model of tauopathy by overexpressing soluble alpha APP using AAVs. I don't know if that's got a therapeutic potential, but it's just really interesting. And another cool one was um, by David Tempellini, um, who was looking at whether deep brain stimulation can ameliorate tau pathology. Um, and in neurons cultured from a PS19 mouse, which is a tau mouse, they found a decrease in tau organism phosphatau following LTP and showed that synaptic stimulation promotes lysosomal degrading activity. Um, which is actually really interesting because people have been shown before that if you stimulate neurons, they propagate tau. So it's interesting that you kind of have this one mechanism where you stimulate them and the lysosomal function improves and they're thinking that's a therapeutic target, but maybe it's also going to spread it around. So I think they need to look at that, but it's quite interesting for me. Um, Maybe not for anybody else, but 
Um, and so, yeah, if we go around the table again, um, Wagner, have you got any more talks that stood out for you? So, um, still staying with, uh, with with my bias of blood biomarkers, I think that uh, uh, an, a, an interesting discussion right now in the field of blood biomarkers is whether we are going to have one biomarker or if we're going to do a panel with several different biomarkers. So uh, Sebastian Palmquist from Lund showed some interesting data on uh, biomarker panels, and there are also many other people who will show interesting work on that. Uh, Pamela Ferreira from Pittsburgh is also presenting some interesting data on that uh, today. Uh, and something that was very, very, uh, called very much my attention was uh, during uh, the plenary, uh, by, by, uh, in, the, in the biomarker plenary by Oscar Hansen, where he showed uh, some new data with an alpha-synuclein ligand. I think that this is something that, I mean, we are in the ADPD conference, right? I mean, and, and I think that sometimes since we have some more tangible advances in biomarkers for AD, uh, I think that we really, really need good biomarkers also for for uh, for Parkinson's disease. So it's very exciting to see some promising data on that. Yeah, that's really inter interesting. I didn't go to that talk, um, but so did they find that they've got a marker that can detect in Parkinson's disease? Because I know they've been saying that they had an alpha-synuclein marker that didn't correlate with Parkinson's disease before. Yes, yes. Uh, so he showed a, a, pr a preliminary data from a, a smaller subset of patients, uh, but it, it, it really seemed that uh, the tracer uh, seemed to be uh, working in individuals with Parkinson's disease in comparison to controls and individuals with uh, AD dementia. So it's, 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 it's very interesting, and I guess now we'll have just to, to wait to see more data on that. Yeah, hopefully. Well, if it's anything like the PTAO, I think it hopefully will go quite quickly. Um, so, should we go to Amanda next? I guess, yeah, just carrying on from that, was, was that, um, did they do, path, sorry, did they do pathological town measurements in the CSF for that one? I did see it, I can't remember. For the alpha-synuclein yeah, ligand? Yeah, I just wondered. Uh, I'm not really sure, I don't think he showed uh, AD no, fluids uh, for, for, for the synuclein uh, ligand. Because, yeah, one of the things that, I mean, we know where there are holes in our kind of arsenal. We don't have really good, easy to use synuclein, uh, alpha synuclein mm -hmm. um, methods to mm -hmm. measure that in fluids. I know that there's a quaking assay, which I haven't actually heard anyone talk about here. There might have been someone, there's so many talks, you just can't go to everything you want to, but that's the way of it. But also, TDP 43 as well is another thing that we really need those assays for, and which I, I've been, there might be one on now actually, while we're sitting here, to be honest. <laughs> 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 but, but no, I watched Oscar's talk and that was all very, um, I mean the Biofinder cohorts are really great cohorts, I think, and like the longitudinal stuff that he presents is also really good. So that was really interesting. And I think I don't, Nick Ashton's talk today, mm -hmm. talking about measuring in real world scenarios, I, I found that really interesting because a lot of studies are presented to you having been picked and all of the people that will cause you a problem with your analysis taken away, taken out of that study, which is how you start. That's how you have to start to get meaningful results but actually then taking it and measuring the next person that comes to the clinic, the next one, the next one, the next one, 
is the way that you see if it actually works in a real world situation, which is with the plasma biomarkers is definitely where we need to be going. Otherwise, we're never going to. Yeah, and, 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 and I think that it also goes in line with what uh, you and Percy were discussing uh, before, uh, because I mean, we already have this this uh, population, this ancestry bias uh, on yeah. the populations that we look the most uh, in, in North yeah. America, in Europe. But even within these settings, sometimes we are also still much restricted to very specialized, specialized dementia cohorts. So uh, this talk, uh, this is what I think that this is also one of my, my highlights. So this mm -hmm. this work that uh, Nick Ashton led in collaboration with Mark Suarez and, and, and the Hospital Hospital del Mar team. Oh, I'm not going to say Hospital del Mar because I'm not sure. I always get okay. confused if it's São Paulo <laughs> or Hospital del Mar. Okay. Uh, so yeah, the, this talk by Nick Ashton uh, about his work that he led uh, with the team of neurologists here in Barcelona, Mark, Mark Suarez and, and his other colleagues, it's really interesting because I mean, within our uh, mostly European and North American settings, we are needing much of these works that focus beyond these specialized uh, dementia cohorts. So he, this was a very heterogeneous memory clinic population in which they collected pl uh, paired plasma and CSF. And we just saw that the biomarkers seem to work to detect uh, very well uh, to detect underlying ID pathology. And I guess that we really need to look beyond these specialized uh, dementia cohorts in our own settings. Yeah, sure. Um, Percy, anything more? Yeah, I can, I can add a little bit to what um, Wagner and um, Amanda were talking about here. So the, the importance of getting all of these biomarkers for alpha-synuclein and tau and, um, and amyloid and even TDP43 is that over 50% of the cases that present in the clinic are mixed dementia, right? Yep. And that, yeah. that, um, that kind of points to some of the work that uh, Betty Timms um, mm -hmm. was talking about in that there, there are several molecular subtypes of the disease. Right? And if you want to move towards precision medicine approaches, you need to know what, is, what pathology is happening in who to make sure that the drugs that you're delivering works in the people that you're giving them to. Yeah. And having all of these tools at our fingertips is going to help us do that. So that was just adding to the biomarker discussion. And now I'm going to go to my own bias, which is the <laughs> neuroimmunology discussion once <laughs> again. And um, these were two fascinating talks um, that I'm going to kind of merge together. So one was by Bruce Lamb, who is at Indiana University, and the other was by Oleg Butovsky, who is at, um, I believe, Harvard, but don't quote me on that one. Mm -hmm. But um, so we've been taught, again, part of the maturation of the field is that the diversity of targets that we have begins to grow. Right, And more and more, you're seeing people talking about the impact of the immune system on disease pathology. And um, I know back in the day, um, again, don't, I don't exactly remember when, but there were, there were trials that looked at um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in Alzheimer's disease, because if the immune system is causing the pathology, just turn it off. But that didn't necessarily work, because there's greater nuance than that. And that was the work that Bruce Lamb showed. So he was looking at PLCG2, and he showed that um, in one genetic form, um, in one um, um, genetic isoform of it, it was protective, and in the other one, it was, um, it was detrimental. And it's the same risk gene expressed in the same cells. 
just pointing to the level of nuance that is required to fine-tune the immune system to provide real benefit to people living with, disease, with the disease. And Oleg Butovsky was doing something similar, too, because he found that um, in APPPS1 mice, of course, we all know APOE. APOE's been pay, uh, APOE4 has been painting at as this bad guy who always goes wrong and, and um, um, increases your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. But um, he showed that whereas um, APOE4 uh, microglia, whereas they, they promoted um, astrocyte and microglial activation in the brain, um, in the eye, they were APOE4 uh, microglia were protective. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to ask these, these questions about how do we fine tune these systems to ensure that what we're doing to, ch to modify or change the disease course is actually beneficial to the right people? Yeah. Great. Um, Anna, anything more? Yes, there was another lysosomal talk, which I thought was very interesting. Um, so this was by uh, Frederica Zunk. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce her name, on behalf of her graduate student, Alice Drobny. Um, so in their group, they studied the reciprocal interaction between alpha-synuclein and the lysosomal homeostasis, and they did this in IPS-drives nucleopathy models. So they demonstrated that in cells that had mutation in the gene that encodes um, alpha-synuclein, which is SNCA, this was a triplication of the gene, that the endolysosomal trafficking system was impaired, so the proteins that need to be expressed in the lysosome can't get there. And specifically, they demonstrated that the transport of immature lysosomal cathepsin proteins is disrupted. So this then reduced the uh, levels of mature cathepsins in the lysosome, and I'm biased because cathepsins are part of my PhD program, so I was very excited. I was taking lots of notes. <laughs> um, uh, but what's really important here is that the cathepsins play key roles in the degradation of alpha-synuclein, so then this creates a vicious cycle where there's less cathepsins to degrade alpha-synuclein, and then the, this inhibits further the, uh, the cathepsins that can make it to the lysosome. But what was really interesting was that they demonstrated that when they treated these neurons with a inhibitor, a Farney cell transferase inhibitor, <laughs> which is currently used in cancer treatments, this was able to rescue lysosomal cathepsin expression in SNCA mutant mice. So this was in vivo. And they demonstrated that this could then, I guess, be a potential therapeutic target in, P in PD and what's good is that this is all already a drug that's demonstrated to be safe in, in human patients so I thought that was quite interesting. Another talk that I thought was really interesting was Don Cleveland's talk. Uh, he's from the University of San Diego and he gave this talk this morning and in his talk uh, in his lab they've been using antisense oligonucleotides or ASOs um, that specifically inhibit or suppress the expression of um, PTB1, which is expressed in radial glial cells. And this, this basically converted the identity of these cells into neurons. Um, and he's shown that this can actually, even though this, this is only transient um, suppression, these neurons um, managed to survive. And months later, they are there. They've extended dendrites and axons. Um, and they found about 8% more neurons in, the, in these mouse brains that they were before. And he demonstrated later in this talk that this could be a potential therapy for Parkinson's disease. So they had a... Um, a toxin model of, of Parkinson's disease called the 6-OHGA mouse model. And they demonstrated that they could they could actually reverse the lesion in, in, in the, the the in these lesioned mice. So they they most of the mice got better within a three-month period after receiving this ASO treatment. Um, that as this converted the glia um, into, into nigral neurons. I think you explained it pretty well. Um, Mike, do you have any comments on that? It's quite cool, isn't it? 
I mean, yeah, that sounds quite amazing to me. I didn't go to that talk, and I'm sorry I didn't, but yeah, it was as really I cool. said before, you can't be at all of them. No, there's the so much going on. So, yeah. Yeah, what about you, Percy? I saw you nodding, nodding along at the beginning. No, I think it's it's um, it's very interesting technology ASOs because I think they've been applied in other disease areas as well. So it's interesting seeing it in our space. Um, but also the fact that you're able to change a glial cell to a neuron, that's that's um, that's really cool. And just um, I was I was going to ask this, but it sounds like it, he didn't look at um, stem cells necessarily and potentially um, inducing neurogenesis with that. Because that, that would, because I, I think about what would happen if they lost the glial cells that they needed for particular parts of the network of the brain. So that was what I was nodding on about and being very excited about quietly in my corner. <laughs> <laughs> cool, you have You want anything else? No, I was just going to say that. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't mention anything about um, stem cells. I, I imagine it would, it would purely be because it would be a bit more complicated to induce um, conversion into, into what cell type. Because I think that it was just it was amazing to me that you could suppress one gene and that it would completely change its identity. I guess that's they only looked at the radial glial for for that simplicity. Um, but yeah, I did think that too, like what, what are these glial cells doing? Are they serving a function that 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 is important? But I guess that because they've seen these behavioral changes um, that are positive, they did, he didn't report any negative effects in his talk. Yeah, well, we'll wait for the paper and see if that's in the <laughs> small print. Um, okay, so we've not got much time left, so I'll just finish with a couple of points. Um, so last week's podcast featured Henrik Zetterberg, and he's been very present this week, chairing, hosting, and presenting. I wonder maybe, Amanda Wagner, how much of the progress we've been talking about is down to him? Um, yeah, would you like to comment on that? If there's anyone in the scientific world who can get people together and collaborate and give the enthusiasm that it needs for that collaboration to happen, then it's Henrik. So... I'm guessing that he is at the centre of all of it. Do you think, Wagner? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so too. And it has been a wonderful experience to be there in Gothenburg, working with him and Kai. I think that I mean, it's just walking around the conference, and you see Henrik is always with everyone and yeah. he's always like you know that he's not just saying hello to the person yeah. he's probably starting a collaboration or maintaining a collaboration and i think it's really important that uh, we we need scientists like that that collaborate with people around the world yeah. to to make it such a, a nice team effort yeah it sounds like the best kind of person and like just what we need in the world right now don't we yeah so that's great so just one last thing um, on Tuesday we had the pleasure of hearing from Nobel laureate Thomas Sudoff discussing regulation of synaptic function in Alzheimer's genes. I think Percy you went to that talk would you like to comment? I was at that talk and it was again very fascinating to see because it's very much in line with what I talked about from Oleg Butovsky's talk as well is that we have this one view of you know these particular proteins are bad these particular proteins are good and he was talking about how um, APOE can induce MAPK signaling and that leads to further APP transcription and that changes endolysosomal size and forms synapses. But the can canonical view of APOE is that it's bad for the brain and it leads to Alzheimer's disease. So what does this mean? And in his talk, he, um, he went through the signaling cascade and he, he was very, very um, open about the fact that this was in a cell culture model and this was work that is very preliminary. 
But at the end of the talk, he, he ended almost perfectly by saying, I'm not going to give you any conclusions because I, I don't know. And that's okay for a scientist to say, too. Like, we don't know. We have more questions that we want to answer. And that's what I like about this conference and being, with, being around people again is that there are, question, there are more questions. Like, there, there are no conclusions. There's still Alzheimer's raging out there. There's all of these other dementias. We have questions on how to diagnose it, how to treat it, and how to reduce the risk of, of, of the disease. So more questions is good as well. And that's the biggest thing that I took away from this fantastic plenary. Yeah, I think Bart de Struefer did the same. And it's literally the definition of science, isn't it? We don't know, and that's why we're looking. I don't think we'll ever get all the conclusions. So we'll keep going with that. Um, so I know we're all keen to get back to the conference, and Anna has already ditched because um, she had one GBA um, meeting, and it was now. So um, that's probably all we have time for today. I would like to thank our awesome guests, Wagner Broom, Amanda Hesselgrave, Percy Griffin, and Anna Wernick. Thanks. 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 It was really nice to meet you. We have profiles on all of today's panelists on the website, including details of their Twitter accounts. So please do check those out. Finally, please remember to like, subscribe, and leave a review of this podcast through our website and in your favorite podcast app. It would also be great if you want to comment and share your own highlights. I'm Katie Hall. I've been your host for today, and I look forward to joining you again. Thank you. Adios. <laughs> Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.